The world of Islam, culture, religion, and politics. I greet you with peace. My name is Amin Tayis. This is episode 5 of The World of Islam, Culture, Religion, and Politics. Thank you for taking the time to join me again as we continue our journey through the history of Islamic thought. In this episode, we will start tackling uh, perhaps the most difficult part of uh, the uh, historical survey, namely the life and career of Muhammad, the founder of the religion that came to be known as Islam. Why do I describe this part as the most difficult one? Well, one reason is that emotions are today running high in the politically charged world we live in, especially after uh, the tragic events of 9-11 and the various wars, conflicts, and terrorist attacks that occurred since then in different parts of the world. We still remember the 2005 uh, Danish cartoons controversy in which Muhammad uh, was portrayed in negative ways. The storm that followed this is indicative of how emotions based on perceptions built over centuries of real and imagined uh, confrontations between the domain we now call the West and uh, the domain uh, in which Islam has dominated for a long time. We will go back to these dynamics in later episodes. What interests us here is to simply highlight how uh, this cartoon's affair played the role of more fuel for a fire that we have failed to extinguish for a number of reasons. So what happened after the cartoons were published? There were death threats in Europe, uh, major protests in many Muslim-majority countries, uh, some of them led to acts of uh, violence and vandalism against embassies and businesses, calls of boycott against Danish exports multiplied and uh, found open ears among Muslims worldwide. Um, and while many Europeans viewed these reactions as highly disproportionate to the publishing of cartoons, and as uh, another proof that the religion of Muhammad was highly intolerant, many Muslims, even as they called for calm, perceived this cartoon affair as just another example of the centuries-long Western disdain and even hatred for Muslims, their prophet, and their religion. Not surprisingly, uh, this all quickly became about identity. For Europeans who have had a long historical struggle to create an environment in which religion uh, could uh, be uh, freely criticized, it became about the very identity of uh, European culture. Uh, in Europe, that according to many of its politicians and uh, public intellectuals was facing a serious challenge 
from the growing influence of quote-unquote uh, Islam within its own borders. For Muslims who have now been on the defensive for long decades against what they view as Western attacks on who they are, especially since the uh, colonial experience of the 18th, 19th and early 20th centuries. And who Muslims are has been historically tied to a religious worldview in which Muhammad plays a central role. So the question for us here is to what extent can we detach ourselves from this sticky environment in order to take a critical approach that attempts first and foremost to understand who Muhammad was and what uh, he taught and uh, his and what was his impact on his community uh, past and present without increasing the potential for emotionally uh, driven reactions. Um, and so um, that's one major difficulty. But an equally important challenge is that Muhammad uh, is obviously not an ordinary historical figure. This is one of the most important and influential men in history. The stories of historical figures that become important in the eyes uh, of their uh, communities and societies, uh, these stories become grounds for the introduction of mythical elements. This is even more so for founders of great religious movements. It quickly becomes very difficult, if not impossible, to decipher uh, myth from history nor is it always desi desirable to decipher them even if possible. Why do I say this? Because uh, the way a religious figure is perceived by his or her followers matters a great deal if we want to understand how this religious figure affects the lives of millions of people. As scholar of, scholar of religion Carl Ernest uh, remarks, it is not very helpful, for example, to simply call Jesus a carpenter in first century Palestine or to describe the Buddha uh, simply as a prince from the fifth century uh, of before the common era who became a poor traveler. It would be a great disservice to us as students of history to dismiss how the sacred, the magical, the imaginative, the symbol, symbolic shapes the lives of human beings as they attempt to make sense of the world around them. This happens even in secular settings. Think of the American experience, of our story as a nation, the sense of destiny we embrace, these symbolic values we perceive to be sacred, the way we imagine important moments of our history, the veneration with which we approach our institutions and founding history and documents like the Constitution. Now, I don't want to suggest that the way people perceive a religious figure or their religious identity is uh, static, uh, unchanging, or uh, unchangeable. Quite the opposite. It's the possibility to retell and reshape 
these stories that allow them to remain uh, relevant in different times and places. In the case of Muhammad, uh, different groups of Muslims have stressed different elements of his life and his teachings depending on place, time, political environment, ideological leaning, etc. But in general, these shifts uh, of emphasis take at their starting point the framework provided by the early biographers of Muhammad. So let's keep all this aside for a little while and let's first start with the question of how a contemporary historian can know about Muhammad, his life and his career. Uh, there is of course a rich Muslim literature on Muhammad spanning a variety of genres and uh, for our purposes we will highlight three important sources. The first source is the Quran. This is the name of the revelation, Al-Wahi, the word of God uh, according to Muslim tradition. Uh, we will have a whole episode uh, discussing uh, the Quran in the near future. For now, I will only provide some introductory elements. The Quran is originally an oral discourse that responds to particular events in the life of Muhammad and his followers, first in the town of Mecca and later in Yathrib uh, during a 23-year period from 610 to 632. Uh, it is also uh, worth noting here that the linguistic structure of the Quranic discourse is at a basic level composed of a speaker using the pronounce the pronouns I we uh, or we which is uh, in this case God a first addressee uh, using the pronoun you which is uh, Muhammad uh, and this first addressee is also a mediator between the speaker and the second addressee uh, using the pronouns uh, they, he, um, and uh, by which uh, are uh, meant uh, men in general, uh, believers or rejectors of the message. So what can we know about Muhammad from the Quran? Uh, the answer is that uh, using only the Quran without the aid of extra Quranic sources, we cannot get a complete picture of Muhammad to say the least. Even the name uh, Muhammad uh, is only mentioned four times in the Quran. Uh, no names of the people who lived around him are mentioned either, with only two exceptions. What we do have is a focus on uh, his role as a Nabi, a prophet, and a Rasul, a messenger of God. This goes with an apparent insistence on the humanity of Muhammad, his limitations as a human being, and even his flaws and mistakes that are corrected by God in the Revelation. Uh, consider the verse 9 of chapter 46, uh, called Surah Al-Ahqaf, uh, it says, قُلْ مَا كُنْتُ بِدَعًا مِنَ الرُّسُلِ وَمَا أَدْرِي مَا يُفْعَلُوا بِي وَلَا بِكُمْ إِنْ أَتَّبِعُوا إِلَّا مَا يُوحَى إِلَيَّ 
وما أنا إلا نذير مبين. Say, I am not original among the messengers, and I do not know what will be done with me or with you. I only follow uh, what has been revealed to me. I am nothing but a clear warner. Or consider the first 10 verses of chapter 80 uh, called Surat Abasa. Uh, it says, Abasa wa tawalla an ja'ahu al-a'ma wa ma yudrika la'allahu yazzakka aw yazzakara fatanfa'ahu al-dhikra amma man istaghna fa'anta lahu tasadda wa ma alayka alla yazzakka وَأَمَّا مَنْ جَاءَكَ يَسْعَى وَهُوَ يَخْشَى فَأَنْتَ عَنْهُ تَلَهَى He frowned and turned away when the blind man came to him. How do you know that perhaps he came to be purified or to be reminded and remembrance would benefit him? As for the wealthy man, to him you give attention. And it was not your concern that he did not seek purification. Yet the one who came seeking you, fearful of God, from him you were distracted. Or again, verse uh, 12 of chapter 11 called Surat Hud. فَلَعَلَّكَ تَارِكٌ بَعْضَ مَا يُوحَى إِلَيْكَ وَضَائِقٌ بِهِ صَدْرُكَ أن يقولوا لولا أنزل عليه كنز أو جاء معه ملك إنما أنت نذير والله على كل شيء وكيل. It may be that you would give up part of what is revealed to you, and your heart becomes becomes constrained by it because they say, why has there not been sent down to him a treasure? Or come with him an angel, but you are only a warner, and God is in charge of all things. Or again, uh, the first few verses of uh, chapter 93, uh, Surah Duha, it reads, by the morning light and by the night when it is still your lord has not forsaken you nor is he displeased and what comes later is better for you than what has gone before and your lord will give you and you will be pleased did he not find you an orphan and gave you shelter and found you in error and guided you and found you poor and made you free from want. So, as to the orphan, do not oppress. And as for him who asks, do not repel him. And as for the bounty of your Lord, announce it. But the Quran also insists on the great moral character of the Prophet. For instance, verse 4 of chapter 68 called Surah Al-Qalam, وَإِنَّكَ لَأَلَى خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ you are surely of a great moral character. 
It also insists on his merciful nature and his exemplary behavior. Verse 21 of chapter 33, You have in the messengers of, in the messenger of God a good example for anyone whose hope is in God and the last day and who remembers and who remembers God often. And uh, in verse 107 of chap chapter 21, Surah Al-Anbiya, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ We have not sent you, but as a mercy to the worlds. Uh, the Prophet's good behavior uh, and nature are stressed in the Qur'an even in instances when his followers uh, or his wives disobey or irritate him. Uh, and to so to summarize, the Quran does not provide us with the full story of Muhammad's life. We encounter glimpses of his personality in response to particular situations, uh, situations that, by the way, we cannot have a clear picture of uh, from the Quran alone. And we encounter a prophet who has a special connection to the divine, but who himself is thoroughly human with limitations, uh, frustrations, doubts, and fears. Uh, he's also of great character and he uh, he's presented as bravely carrying the burden of prophethood while facing very difficult challenges. So this is in general the image that the Quran uh, gives us of Muhammad. Uh, the second source that the historian has access to is the literature of hadith, uh, prophetic reports. These are reports about what Muhammad said, uh, did, approve, or disapprove. Uh, these reports uh, were orally transmitted by individuals generation after generation uh, until they uh, were recorded in uh, major collections some 200 years after the death of Muhammad. We will spend plenty of time in a later episode uh, presenting the hadith. Uh, here I will only add that the uh, that early Muslim authorities intensely debated how to know the Prophet's uh, sunnah uh, or uh, exemplary normative behavior or exemplary normative uh, tradition. So how to know the Prophet's Sunnah in order to follow in uh, his footsteps. Ultimately, uh, proponents of the Hadith movement would have the last uh, word in this debate for a variety of reasons. And the Sunnah of Muhammad was to be known through these individual reports called Hadith. Uh, in English, uh, the term Hadith is usually used uh, as a generic term, um, uh, in Arabic, its hadith is in singular, the plural of hadith is ahadith. Um, the hadith uh, was particularly essential to Muslim jurists, uh, legal scholars, trying to decipher uh, God's will and, and God's law. 
uh, it is in the legal context and to a lesser degree uh, in the theological context that the hadith becomes uh, very uh, important. But there was a problem that Muslim scholars had to deal with which was the fabrication of hadith reports. As we will see in an upcoming episode, the early development of the Muslim religious perspective after Muhammad would occur in a very fragmented environment that included two civil wars and the rise of serious sectarian tensions. And so, uh, someone claiming uh, their opinion to be coming from the Prophet uh, was a way of uh, giving themselves an authoritative status. Slowly, a class of scholars, which would be known as the Muhaddithun, uh, the Hadith scholars, they will devise a method to judge the reliability of prophetic reports or Hadith. Uh, we'll get back in detail to all this uh, in the future. For now, let's uh, briefly discuss what image of Muhammad the Hadith provides us with in general. It is safe to say that the Hadith gives us uh, many more details about Muhammad than the Quran. Although, uh, here again, not in biographical form. There is no storyline. The collections of Hadith are organized in topics and uh, on each topic we find specific reports from Muhammad dealing with some aspect of that topic. Here Muhammad teaches, that, teaches us what Islam is, what correct belief is, what righteous practice is, uh, etc. through his sayings and his actions, uh, even in the most mundane of things uh, like eating or sleeping or uh, even extremely private matters. Until today, conservative Muslims uh, strive to imitate the Prophet in all the details of his behavior. Um, now, the image we get of Muhammad from the Hadith is in some ways in tension with the image we get from the Quran. In some of uh, the Quranic verses I cited earlier, uh, we saw how Muhammad is celebrated as the chosen messenger of God, uh, the last messenger, Khatamun Nabiyin. Nevertheless, he is presented as thoroughly human. Uh, he does not seem to perform miracles. He leaves the knowledge of the future uh, to God alone. He has human reactions to events around him. He doubts, he fears, etc. In the Hadith, on the other hand, Muhammad performs many miracles, he prophesizes about the future, he speaks about specific people going to paradise and others going to hellfire in the world to come. Uh, he shows little signs of doubt, fear, or having second thoughts about what he preaches. It would be very wrong to say that Muhammad uh, in, in the Hadith is more than human. In fact, Hadiths are very clear that Muhammad is not divine. But it remains that, unlike in the Quran, Muhammad uh, in the Hadith comes close to perfection. 
it is no surprise that in the context of Islamic law, as we will uh, will uh, later see, sound reliable hadiths uh, as representatives of the true Sunnah, uh, Muhammad's normative behavior or practice, uh, they will acquire the status of uh, a second form of wahi, a second form of revelation. That being said, uh, we must also add that the hadith develops from uh, develops um, some Quranic themes about Muhammad. Uh, for example, we find many instances of his merciful nature in hadith reports, uh, his kind treatments of his family members, of his personal servants, of of his companions, and and even of his enemies are present in all the major collections of hadith. So that's Muhammad in the Hadith. If we're looking for a narrative, a story, a sort of a biography, then we must turn to what is known as the Seerah, uh, Seerah to Nabi. This is a genre that uses transmitted reports about different parts of Muhammad's life and puts them in chronological order to create a complete narrative of the life of Muhammad going back to pre-Islamic times and scanning the whole life and career of the prophets. It is very important here uh, to note that the Sira collectors were less stringent in their assessment of the reliability of the reports. And in fact, the collectors of Hadith, uh, the Muhaddithun I mentioned earlier, uh, they criticized and rejected many of the reports found in the Sira. Um, but it remains that the Hadith and the Sira are ultimately two different genres. And the Sira would continue being a highly successful genre in Islamic history even after the uh, success of the Hadith movement. The earliest Sira we have, uh, we have access to, and the one that uh, became the most prestigious of all is the one collected by uh, Ibn Ishaq, who dies in 767. And we only have access to it in an edited version by Ibn Hisham, who dies 833, uh, and uh, in quotes in uh, the works of some other uh, Muslim scholars. It is important here to note that the Sirah of Ibn Ishaq was written some hundred years after the death of Muhammad with um, many important events having occurred uh, within uh, the um, Muslim uh, community and many changes having developed in the way various Muslim groups perceived themselves. Ibn Ishaq's time was one of a large Muslim empire that has inherited much of the political, intellectual, and cultural legacies of the Near East, uh, of the larger Near East that we discussed in uh, earlier episodes. And Ibn Ishaq's time was uh, also a time in which sectarian divisions within Islam had already taken hold in a variety of ways. Um, and we will try to raise some questions about how these changes 
within the world of Islam might have affected the writing or more accurately the editing of the Sirah. But before all that, we will provide a summary of the life of Muhammad as the traditional account narrates it. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, it uh, greatly matters how Muslims came to see the life of their Prophet for us to even begin to understand the role of Muhammad in shaping Muslim identity past and uh, present. Um, so please join me again next time as we learn more about Muhammad in the Sirah. And uh, don't forget to like the podcast's uh, Facebook page. Uh, your support is uh, very appreciated. For now, uh, I leave you in peace. Assalamu alaikum.